What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning in to the second episode of Phillies Therapy. My name is Paul Boyer. I am joined once again by the Athletic Philadelphia's Matt Gelb here on our large, sprawling therapeutic couch where we get to dissect and talk over the week that was in Phillies baseball, look ahead to the weeks that will be in Phillies baseball as we get closer to opening day. And because the Oscars are tonight, we want to take a little bit of a different approach to uh, thinking about this Philadelphia Phillies team and uh, the different contributors on it, we're going to talk about awards, Oscars, that we could be handing out to Phillies players and uh, coaches in the categories of costume design, best sound, screenplay, and more. You're probably going to want to hang on to figure out just how far we can stretch this metaphor out. But before I go any further, hi, Matt. How are you? I'm good, Paul. By the time people are listening to this, I'll be... Uh, either in the air or back on the ground in Florida. I uh, spent most of this week at home. That's probably if people were wondering why there wasn't very much coming from me. It was a chance to come home for a few days and uh, see the kids and uh, get a little break. But heading back down and uh, finishing up camp, I think there's 10 full days left of camp. And uh, a lot about lots about to happen. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, you probably watched a little more baseball than I did this week. I don't know how much Phillies you watched, but uh been following and uh I don't know, it's starting to come together, right? I mean, they have all the introductory press conferences out of the way and mm-hmm. now it's about, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out who's going to be on this team or who's going to be ready enough to be on this team. Well, I I'll tell you what, leaving aside that you're ditching all of us up here in the Northeast when it's about to plunge into 25 degree weather to go back down to Florida, leaving that aside, um we may get back to that a, a little bit later and, and hash that out. Um, the The team this week, I, I think, is um, not really any different from the team that we saw last week, right? I mean, the, one week in spring training will not tell you a full story of a player, whether they're you know going to make a team or not make a team. But really, even that aside, we, we haven't seen a whole lot of change in anybody's stock, really, except maybe Mickey Moniak, because he just seems to be pummeling the crap out of the ball. Everybody else is, you know, either performing as expected, good or bad, or is just nice to see come up to the plate or take the mound, get a good look at them on a TV broadcast if we don't usually get to see them uh, down in the minor leagues. Um, but we do want to we do want to touch on one particular subject, and this will come after our our Oscars, after our award ceremony. Third base is still. Mm, Something's still a little bit unsettled there, and, and we'll get to that. But first, we have we have to hand out some hardware, or at least we have to think about handing out some hardware and who might be in the running for some of these awards that we have just crafted, that we have come up with, and that we will arbitrarily assign. We hold the power, Matt. So we want to get right into it. And in thinking Isn't it about, early for awards in baseball? N- well, yeah, you know, it would be, but the Oscars are tonight, of course. Um, and we have to be thematic when that happens. This is podcasting. This is content, and we have to we have to stay culturally relevant. And this is how we do that. So, can I, can I make a can I make a terrible admission? Oh my god! I, I yes, I I might have seen one movie that was made in twenty twenty one. Uh huh. That's it. That's not that's not terrible. Why is that terrible? 
I mean, I just, you know, I don't know. Like I used to be somebody who would try to watch a lot of the best picture nominees and, uh, I don't know. Life happened, you know, like I I watched, I think I saw one and I kind of regret seeing it. I think it's up for a couple of awards and it's a, it was a Netflix movie with, um, Leonardo DiCaprio was oh uh, don't look up don't look up and I did not like it no I didn't either I didn't either. No, it was too heavy-handed well it was just too too much well that's okay we're gonna we're gonna take the award show concept and we're gonna turn it on its head a little bit we're gonna make it relevant to baseball here this metaphor is definitely not stretched or tortured at all we have six categories of awards and they may sound familiar if you're somebody who watches award shows or is familiar with movies but we're going to put a baseball spin on him. We're going to try to make it work. You know what? I think it's going to work. So we're just going to plow right ahead here. The first award of the evening is for costume design. Now, the Phillies have a ton of great uniforms. They have a lot of really great combinations. I think, and in the objective opinion of people like Paul Lucas at UniWatch, who are the, the savants and the true experts in this field, they really do have some of the best in the entire league. Just pure beauty. But are they deploying them in the wrong way? And what I mean by that is, are they using the wrong alternate for the Sunday games? Are they not using the powder blues enough? Matt, what would make people happy with the uniforms? And how can we get more of the powder blues and maroons and maybe even the Saturday night specials to show up a bit more in the rotation here? Because right now it feels like they're almost criminally underused. So people think I'm crazy when I say this. First of all, my f- favorite Phillies uniform is the road gray. And uh, really, I, I think the road gray is just classic. I like the look. I think it's a great uniform. People think I'm crazy for that, but people think I'm crazy for saying this. They had these uniforms for players weekend in 2018. And you know, apologies. You know, I, I excuse everyone for not remembering what those looked like, but they were red pullovers, bright red, with like light blue, basically powder blue sleeves, and it just had Phillies across chest in red. And I like the idea of taking the powder blue somehow and applying some sort of modernized uh, styling to it. And I agree. Like, I think they're looking. They're trying to get more blue maybe even powder blue, like into the, into the rotation. And I know it upsets the traditionalists that they wear the powder blues at home now because they were the road jerseys when they used to wear Mm -hmm. them. And I get that. I, I like the idea of like bring it in somehow. I I am staunchly against the all red uniforms only because (laughs) it's a, it's a spring training uniform. Like that's what they wear in spring training. uh, I, but it's, it's not the same red though. It's that deeper maroon. Like, and, and there's a, there's like almost this gravitas that you get with a, a deeper shade of red than, you know, the, the bright, um, you know, basic color wheel red that they have in spring training. There's something I, I, I get it. It could look a little campy with, you know, full pants and the jersey looking almost all the same color. It, it, it kind of looks like you you clicked inside the borders on Microsoft Paint with one color and you just dump the paint bucket in there. And I, I get that it can look a little samey that way. But the shade does a lot of lifting there. I I feel like breaking it out just once or twice a year is a li- is a little too is a little too scarce. But I'd be I'd, I'd be willing to hear why I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I just I think it's um, 
I don't know. Like I, I maybe I'm just traditionalist on this, and 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 they haven't changed really changed their uniform styles uh, in in more than thirty years now, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, I know they've introduced some alternates, and uh, I think if you were to ask Bryce Harper, he's a big fan of the creams. That's I think that's his the Sunday favorite. Greens. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's his favorite. But he was he was one of the driving forces behind them wearing uh, the red tops last year for you know a bunch of road games. That Man was his taste. thing. Yeah, he he uh, he really pushed for that. And I, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I just I I, I associate those red uniforms with spring training. I, I know people want to see more color. I think there's just different ways to do it. And I'll say this. When I see the red uniforms, I think of spring training, but I think of one other thing, one mm-hmm. game that sticks out in my head every time I see the red uniforms, and that's the Vince Velasquez game. Oh boy. How could you not? Like, think about it. That's that's when I see the red uniforms, I think about the 16 strikeout game. You know what? Because he's moved on to to greener pastures, or in this case, blacker pastures with the White Sox. I will just choose to remember the happy thoughts I had that afternoon <laughs> when he did that, when he, when he was blown by, you know, BJ Melvin up. We should go back and look at that like, lineup. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, right. It, it's, it's like, the, were there red flags there? Were the Padres at their weakest that they had been in the last, you know, 15 years? Maybe. Was I still happy? Was I texting my dad? Hey, you got to look out for this Vincent Velasquez character. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And that was that was a time of hope. And you know what? I'm going to think about that instead of whatever it was that happened after that. Okay. So if we had to give if we had to give an award and it sounds like you've already made your pick for costume design, best uni, you would give it to the road grays. And I love road it. And grays. I wonder what's going to happen when they get the uniform patches because the uniform patches, the ad the sponsor uh, mm. patch is supposed to go on the uh on the sleeve where the number is where the Phillies currently have the number on the sleeve. And that's interesting. They're, they're very unusual, right? In that, I don't know if there's any other team that has numbers on the sleeve, like the Phillies do. And I think it's a great touch. Uh, it's so I'm guessing the ad is going to go above uh, the number on the sleeve. Now uh, that's, that's going to be, you know, that's not until 2023. We're going to see ads on uniforms. I'm kind of mm. curious to see how that goes. And Very also, we can have great debate about who should be the sponsor on the Phillies uniforms. Well, yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> um, and I would give I would give my my Phillies Oscar. We needed to come up with a name for this and failed to do so. I would give mine to the uh, Powder Blues with the maroon piping and maroon numbers. I just that there's no beating that combination for me. Now, how do you want them to use them though? Would you like to see them oh. wear them more? Well, uh, yes. I, I don't think. You know, for the, from the traditionalist perspective, like you were talking about, they can't be a, a regular home union or anything that drastic. Um, I even as a as a fan of the creams, I would replace the creams on Sunday games with the blues. I feel like that would be that would be a good spot for them. Maybe make the creams a, uh, I don't know, just a day game. Uh, yeah, maybe like the business person special uni. You know that sort of thing. Um, they're fine. I, I really don't have anything against them. I just think something needs to make way for the the powder blues, and that would have to be it. Bring back okay. the interleague star hats. Oh, oh well, yeah. There's an entire there's an entire other debate we can get into <laughs> with the retro styles of this team, but um, we only have so much time. Uh, we do have five more awards to get to, and the second on our list is one that you're going to be able to speak to that I will 
probably not really have much to say about. Uh, it's best sound. Sound, of course, comes from uh, the players and the coaches themselves within the clubhouse before and after games, delivering all of the vital information, as much of it as we can believe, <clears throat> to you and the rest of the pool um, uh, during the season, off days, game days, you name it. There's all kinds of sound bites hitting your recorders. Who, in your opinion, and I'm very interested to see how this how this answer transpires. Who, in your opinion, is going to give the best clubhouse interviews during the course of the season? Well, so part of this is uh, a little unpredictable for me because two they've acquired two strong candidates for this award in the mm-hmm. last you know two weeks, and I, I don't know them that well. I know that uh, the reputations, and I think Kyle Schwarber might be the guy who ends up winning this award. Okay. I feel like he's going to be a guy. Uh, who is quickly going to become one of the, if not the voice of that clubhouse. But I will say, Paul, it's been interesting because I, I hadn't been in the clubhouse for, you know, the better part of, of two years now. That's right. And, uh, you know, this spring, we, uh, the reporters, credentialed media have been uh, back in the clubhouse. And, you know, honestly, like people see, you know, the, the, the can't, you know, the interviews on camera and stuff, but, you know, that's usually a small portion of like what I'm doing in the clubhouse. I mean, Typically, sure. I'm bouncing around, talking to different guys, and uh, it's usually not in a group setting, or it might be in a more relaxed, like less formal setting. And that's, you know, that's how I gen- generally judge, you know, how guys sound are. So, you know, like the layup answer here would be Bryce Harper, and and, and Bryce is very polished. He knows how to answer things. He knows, uh, I don't want to say pander, but you know, he he can pander at times. I think he knows who he's talking to when he talks. Oh, definitely. But, no, he knows. <laughs> he's he's he very knows. well trained. I mean, you think yeah. about it. I mean, the guy's been doing it since he was 13, 12, 13 sure. years old. I mean, it's incredible uh, what this guy has, uh, you know, had to go through, you know, even before he was <laughs> a professional athlete. And I- I'm going to change. I'm going to go with Reese Hoskins, though, because mm. as a beat writer, I, I, you know, uh, uh, yeah, like, yeah, you get excited when a guy says something, it's like, oh, it's going to make a headline, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like, as a beat writer, though, I'm looking for a guy who's able to put things in perspective. Like they're, the good quotes, you know, my opinion is where is you can go to a guy after a big game, whether it's a win or a loss, or if something happens, a big injury or, or a big play. And you can, there's a guy in that clubhouse who just has a feel for how it will affect the team, you know, has a feel for, I look at 162 games like every game is a chapter and it's very cliche, but it is a chapter in a larger book that is this season. And right. it's difficult. It's, it's dangerous to apply more weight to one game than another. Sure. And usually I'm looking for somebody who's able to put certain things that happen during a season in perspective, you know, how the vibe is and what the, the mood is among the players and how this is affecting them. And, and Reese is really good at, uh, not only just having a feel for what's going on, but being able to, to put it into words. And mm. uh, I, I feel like I would usually go to him for, you know, a, a, a bigger picture look at, you know, what's happening with the team and how this is going to affect them. And uh, I just think he's thoughtful with his words. Uh, you know, he, he's careful with his answers and, he, and he's, you know, he, he considers the question and it's not, you know, he, he doesn't speak in a lot of cliches and most guys do. And he'll, right. he'll talk in cliches sometimes, but, uh, he's my answer, but I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a, 
a different kind of clubhouse this year. I'll say. Adding, adding yeah. Schwarber and Castellanos is, uh, you know, changes the vibe, I think, for sure, big time. Uh, and best sound has to be position player. It no does not have to, to be. No, no, it could be, it could no, be anybody. It I mean, because the pitchers, like, you know, you're really only talking to starter every five days, and they're not out there every day, and um, no offense to the pitchers. And especially oh, I see where you're usually, coming from. Okay, yeah. Usually the best quotes, the best quotes are, like, the middle relievers. Like, the bullpen guys are usually, like, the most thoughtful, um, uh, self-aware guys. But uh, I, for this award, I have to go with a position player, and I'm going with Hoskins. But uh, I suspect that Kyle Schwarber is going to be a strong challenger. The, and those are good answers. I, I'm in particular very curious to see what Nick Castellanos is going to be like during the course of a season, like the highs and the lows. So the streaks, the losing <laughs> I, look, I, I, I agree with you that what I've heard, you know, Harper and Hoskins say has, is usually informed and, and on point and polished and, and in, in Hoskins case in particular, yes, it can be very uh, introspective and smart and considered. Um, all of that is, is really fantastic. And I do enjoy hearing from them during the year. I think in watching Nick's introductory press conference, the line about, you know, I don't have a college degree. I'm paid to hit baseballs. Um, you know, how it's about livelihood for him, how it's about providing for his family. I am positive that spoke to so many people in the Delaware Valley in the tri-state area. And that's a really powerful sentiment. And if you introduce yourself to this population of fans with a sentiment like that, coming right out with it, you're going to win a lot of fans instantly. And, and he already has, obviously. See, we have different best sound. I mean, because it's, uh, sure. I'm thinking about it from my job perspective. Sure. Like, who can give me the best way to communicate, you know, like my ideas and like what's happening in the clubhouse and, and, I, you're totally right. I mean, the guy who ends up probably with the most, you know, uh, quoted uh, snippets this year is probably going to be Castellanos. And did they make T-shirts yet with with his uh, like with his uh, uh, his initial saying? I feel like uh, honestly, it, made T-shirts. So yeah. If if this was if this was 2012, 2013 Phillies Twitter, I'm sure it would have been made immediately. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. That doesn't mean it's not out there. Uh, if you have one and you want to show it off, here's a little plug work in, uh, we have a Twitter where we're going to be posting, uh, links to these episodes as they come out at Phillies therapy, go ahead and shoot a reply to us there. We'd love to see your shirts. If you have them, uh, that Matt is expert marketing in case you run aware. <laughs> There's going to be Moving. more shirts this year. I feel like, I feel like people oh, have more yeah. motivation to make up shirts this year. The, Maybe there'll the, be even some, some bed sheet uh groups again we st- we saw a few of them oh, last yeah, few years, yeah yeah you know I, I don't know i'm curious to see what attendance will be like i mean early on it's hard you know it's never easy to judge sure. attendance in april um but i think there will be some seats in the outfield and i wonder if we're going to see some some bedsheet gangs especially with uh either schwarber or cassianos in left yeah. field maybe we see some uh some new clubs out there no that's a good pull that that's that's it for sure i mean in april Probably going to see a little bit more of that, but if they emerge in the, out of that first month, you know, first 30 games or so, they're above 500, they're doing their, you know, five runs a game type of thing, and they're hitting dingers, I think things will start to fill up a little bit. It might be a while before we start seeing regular sellouts again, but it'll it'll probably fill up pretty quick. Uh, in keeping things moving, we do have a couple more awards to get to, and the third award on our list 
is screenplay. Now, we can take a look at this Phillies team as it's currently constructed. We can see that they've added a bunch of bats. They have not really cared so much about what the defense is going to produce in terms of run saved or whatever internal metrics the team might be basing things off of. We've seen that the pitching depth is good at the top, but a little thin, you know, certainly not among the the top ranks of, of the National League in, in terms of arms. But baseball doesn't always stick to that plan. It doesn't always stick to a script. Things that you see in the spring leading up to the start of a season, things that might seem like obvious through lines that, um, you know, would take you through into September and into early October as the defining characteristics of a team. It does not always stay that way. In fact, I might argue it rarely stays that way. But will this season stick to this script? Is this screenplay accurate? Is this team going to score a lot of runs while not really preventing many? Or is it going to be a little bit of a surprise? Maybe the offense is a little bit suppressed. That would be a bad surprise. Maybe the pitching stays a little bit healthier or overperforms. That would be a good surprise. What do you think? Is this going to stick to script? I think the one area that you cannot even script right now is the bullpen. Mm. The variance in the bullpen is extreme. I mean, I think, and maybe that's your your screenplay right now, is that it's either going to be really, really good or it's going to be a total dumpster fire. Mm. And I I don't know that there's a script uh, you could put in front of me right now that I would say, oh, no way that happens. Okay. I I think just about anything is possible with this bullpen. (laughs) And like, you know, there's been some, a few little things you kind of, you know, notice like, you know, Brad Hand, it's like early on in spring and you cannot, you just can't. You know, as, as excited as you want to be about Sir Anthony Dominguez, you know, you're like, oh, this is like, this looks like the guy from, you know, way, way back before mm-hmm. Gabe Kapler killed him. And, <laughs> uh, you know, but you try to temper it because you're like, well, you know, look, this guy's faced three batters in the majors since, you know, since June 2019. And, and right. you don't even know how many innings he's going to give them this year, what kind of quality those innings will be. But yeah, I mean, you got to be encouraged. But then you're like, you see Brad Hand, the stuff is just not... Uh, just not it's not there yet and you're like okay well it's early it's really early but then you look at some of the trend lines and you're like oh man like i, I don't know and then you're like well it was six million dollars over one year so uh, whatever but uh there you, you could not write a script that i would reject right now regarding the bullpen uh i, I just think that it's uh <laughs> so many possibilities i mean canable look at cory canable i mean when mm-hmm. he is healthy he is as dominant as it gets, but it's I mean, very he has pitched 39 innings or so in the last three years combined. So like, what can you possibly expect from him? And Connor Brogdon has had some command kind of questions here in the spring. Jose Alvarado hasn't even gotten into a game yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things going into the season where you're not kind of, you're not really sure. And then just the whole way it was built period. Uh, it's built on stuff, but it's built on guys who don't throw strikes routinely when they do throw strikes. It's, electric sure. uh you just you just don't know so that's my uh i think that's the area where this the screenplay is is uh uh most subject to change i really do and then there's one other thing i want to i want to harp on no of course and that's the idea that um what you know what has been one of the defining characteristics of the last few years and it's that they, they cannot beat the teams they're supposed to beat 
Yep. Right. That they exactly. would do well against the better teams and they would play down to their competition. You know, the Marlins obviously are the, the Marlins stuff. Example. Oh my God. Right. Last year, the Diamondbacks and the Pirates, you know, mm-hmm. were, 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 were more uh, recent examples. I think the script on that is going to flip this year. There we go. I think this go. team is going to beat up on the bottom feeders. All right. I don't know that they will have, but I don't know if they'll be able to play up to that competition, the better competition at times. So yeah. I know going going into the year, everyone's like, oh, like, you know, hey, we, we were 9-10 against the Braves last year. or We were 10-9 and against the Mets last year. You know, if we could just steal a few wins against teams we're supposed to beat, we're right there. I don't know that it's as easy as that. And I, and I think that they'll, you know, I think that they'll beat up on the Marlins and the Nats this year. I do. I mean, they beat up, they crushed the Nats last year. I mean, if it wasn't for the yeah. Nationals, they, uh, they know, would have been wouldn't in the have race, in the right. race period. Uh, but there were other teams that they should have beaten outside the division that they did not beat. Uh, I think with the change of attitude and around this club, I do think there'll be a little more focused and um, probably better against some of the bottom feeders. I, I don't know that that'll, you know, that the trend of them playing well against good teams is going to necessarily carry over though. Yeah. I, I I think it's, I think it's important that the, the offensive script is followed for this season, no matter what. Oh, it's yeah. Like it, it, it it would be great to have 32 starts out of all of Nola Wheeler, Eflin, Ranger Suarez, Kyle Gibson, you know, have a healthy uh, bullpen that gives you, you know, 40 to 60 innings per Sir Anthony Dominguez looks good and doesn't need restrictions, blah, blah, blah. And that would go a long way. Don't get me wrong. But the simple fact of the matter is this team is built to slug. And if they don't score runs, you know, this is a team that's not going to have a good record when they score three runs or fewer. You know, mm-hmm. that graphic pop up in the middle in midsummer and then later on in the year um, record by run scored and et cetera. It's it's a Chiron favorite of a lot of broadcasts. This team is not going to be very good when they only score two or three runs. Um, maybe, you know, if that happens on a day when good Nola is on the mound or Wheeler is on the mound, then you feel a little bit better about your odds. The other three in the rotation, obviously no slouches, but then you get to the bullpen, like you were saying, and things get a little volatile. You don't want to leave it to chance. It's just so important. And I know they're not going to score 10 runs every night. They're not going to score five runs every night. But they need to, on a weekly basis, continue to show that they are delivering on the reason for which they were built this way. And that is to score a bunch of runs. Maybe sometimes that's going to come in the form of dumping 17 on somebody one night and coming back with two the next. That wouldn't make them unique. Other Phillies teams have done that. And that's you know typically how it goes during the course of a year. But they can't disappear for two weeks at a time. Right. Because they'll lose too much ground. So it's really important, critical that they actually hit and that that part of the script stays true to what's on the page. So do you think they're going to score 800 runs? They have not done that in a full season, obviously, since 2009. Yeah. Do you think they cracked that number? I do. I I, I do. I'm choosing to be optimistic about this, A, because it's all we really have. Like It's our hope for getting to the postseason is that this team's offense stays healthy and hits the crap out of the ball. And I'm going to choose to believe that they do. Like. You are in a really good position when your sixth or seventh best hitter could be a 80, 85% return to form Didi Gregorius, a shortstop who can, you know, or a third baseman, wherever he ends up, who could poke 20 homers from down in a lineup 
you know, a, a, a recovering Alec Bohm or whoever ends up at third base Camargo, I guess, if you can bury them at the bottom of the lineup in the eight, nine spot as you know, if they struggle, well, great. I think the top five in this lineup in whatever order they, they structure them in, um, plus Segura who can hit first or second or sixth or seven in this lineup, who knows? I think they're going to do it. The talent is there. The performance is there historically. They have the ballpark to do it. They play half their games in, in CVP, which while not course field will help them out with the long ball. I, I, I think the odds are the best they've been since that 09 season for them to crack 800 and you know what? Yes, I'm going to say that they crack it. Maybe not by a lot, but I think they're finally going to do it. Now, what if what if I told you that three spots in the lineup, let's just say center field, shortstop, and third base, mm-hmm. end up below league average? Mm-hmm. Let's say with an OPS plus below 100. Okay. Do you still think it gets to where you want it to get to? Uh, it would be a bit more of a nail biter. I think you're talking about high 700s coming into the the home stretch of the season still. Well, can uh, they, let's say, well, not even 800, like, can they be a successful team if three spots in the lineup are below league average, but the other six are uh, producing like we expect them to produce? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, Matt. I watched the team come down in the second half last year, basically buoyed by two hitters um, at any one given time. Bryce Harper all the time and then tra- uh, trading off between Gene Segura and Reese Hoskins. And everybody else frequently was invisible. If you have five additional hitters that you can add on to Harper, maybe you don't even get last year's version of him. But if you increase your odds that much and you're already building on top of an offense that was basically carried by, we'll call it one and a half hitters, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I still think they can do it, even if they get lackluster stuff from uh, center field, shortstop, and third base. Yeah, I mean, I think the point that you touched on, you know, the offense not disappearing for for weeks at a time, uh, is just going to be the most crucial part of the script this year. Uh, I mean, without question, and, ha- and think about how we saw that happen last year. Uh, you know, like you said, the whole second half. I mean, other than Bryce. Uh, you're talking about a, an offense that would disappear for weeks at a time. And if that happens again this year, then then I think it's suffice it to say they're, they're in a lot of trouble. But I think they've built a team that uh, will not have long streaks like that. Uh, I don't know, though. I mean, it's uh, I think it's probably the most interesting script there is, the offense. I mean, because they're putting a lot of eggs in that basket. Absolutely. And the man in charge of keeping the team to that script is none other than Joe Girardi, who is in the last guaranteed year of his current contract to be the Phillies manager. Uh, This category, as you might have guessed, is best director. Joe Girardi is in an interesting position where he's not quite in a lame duck year, but he has this contract option that's been talked about in, in uncertain terms at points that has not been exercised as far as we know. And so he enters this 2022 season potentially in a walk year. There are times where it looks like he might not really be interested in staying on past this contract. There are times where you figure, well, are they going to do any better? Do we need to go through another managerial search so soon again and get another guy? And all this coach upheaval that's happened over the last few years probably doesn't need another boat rocking 
um, if they can help it and they apparently can help it in having control of this option. But you wonder if he's the right person to keep doing this. And this is where things get a little hazy because for my eyes on the outside, I look at Joe Girardi as an obviously very smart baseball man who has a lot of experience in a clubhouse and uh, can work with players and who um, maybe plays favorites with some guys you wouldn't want to see quite as much as he puts them in the lineup, but who generally seems to have a good grasp of how to run a team day in, day out. Bonus points now for not having to worry about him running a double switch in the middle. Of the <laughs> but I come back to wondering what the situation is with him and if this being a semi-walk year is going to change things, how much uncertainty there is about whether the team wants him back or if he even wants that contract year picked, that option year on his contract picked up. What's going on with Girardi? And is this, is this going to be something that could be a distraction that might take them off of that script that we were just talking about? Or is that a little bit overblown? And whatever happens after this year is whatever happens after this year. I think it's only a distraction if they do not play well at the beginning of the season. Okay. And I can imagine a scenario in which we get to Memorial Day and maybe they're around 500. Maybe they're a couple games under. I don't know. Somehow they're underperforming. Hmm. And there's going to be a lot of talk about Joe Girardi. Hmm. Like that's just how, you know, it's just how it'll be. Sure. I mean, and, and and because they did not pick up the option, they are opening the door to that talk. And I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting because I'll say this like Girardi. I mean, you can tell he, he you know, he wears his stress uh, pretty openly. Like you can tell like, yeah. when he is uh, you know, maybe feeling it a little bit. And in a contract year, I do think that he, you know, I do think he wants to keep managing. I know there are times, yes, where, you know, he says some things and you're kind of like, is he asking them to fire him? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I know there was times, you know, in the last years are like, what is like, what's happening right now? And, and so I, I do think he wants to manage his team. I think he's invested a lot of energy and time and emotions into this team. Uh, if they are not playing well, given the expectations, uh, and we get to Memorial Day or we're in early June, it's going to be really, really interesting uh, because it will be a distraction because there will be talk about whether he gets replaced, you know, during the season, you know, whether he makes it through the season. And again, this is all just based on how they perform in the first few months. And is that fair? Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I know I take some heat for this, but like, I don't know that Girardi has helped or hurt them. Like I just okay. kind of view him as like a net neutral. I really do. Sure. I mean, like I, I don't, I think actually he runs a bullpen fairly well. Uh, there are some head scratching moments, no doubt. Uh, but he, he does have these rules and I think they work. I think he uh, has done it in a smart way in terms of trying not to overuse guys. We've seen managers just totally abuse relievers here before. And, and it just, it doesn't end well. And, uh, I think he's. I think he does some things. The double, some of the double switching, some of the lineup decisions, some of the stuff playing DD last year at the end of the year, just inexcusable. Um, I also think that a lot of the things that people get angry about are generally negligible when it comes to the final standings. Okay, well that's fair enough. I just it it is difficult as as a fan 
to really judge a manager on things other than emotion or um, perceived faults or missteps without really having that insight into, you know, the day-to-day management and the clubhouse stuff. So we can, I can only really talk in these, in these vague terms that um, really lack concreteness. And I don't know if I, I don't know how badly I'd be hurt if Girardi actually didn't want to stay on or if things went badly, as you're talking about, and they ended up having to part ways and he becomes the fourth manager since Charlie Manuel uh, stepped aside to not finish a third season here with the Phillies in the last yeah, I mean, at nine some point, years. Right. I mean, at some point, yeah. I mean, I think some of the criticism of Jardy is completely warranted. I, I totally agree with some of it. I also think that at some point, like the, the revolving door has just become. It's intense. A, a, a bigger, a, you know, more of a harm than, you know, like not having a plus plus manager, just having a guy who's a neutral. I think most managers in baseball are probably net neutral. I mean, I really do. I mean, I, I don't think that, I think there's very few who positively or negatively impact a team's final win loss record. And, and that's just my perception of it. Uh, I know people would disagree with that. Sure. Well, it would, it will be interesting to see it. As you mentioned, if this team underperforms really at any stretch, you know, especially if they have another choke job like they they had a, a few years back. People are going to be talking but about Girardi. They sure it's are. It's just going to happen because they the Phillies sure do not pick up the option. Yep. Um, so that'll be something to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Um, as we move into our two biggest awards of the night, uh, they focus on the players themselves and what they're expected to produce on the field. And hopefully, and I say this out hoping somebody in the universe is listening who has the cosmic influence to let this finally happen. I can will this team back to the playoffs. If a 12 team playoff field doesn't do it, I don't know what will (laughs) we're talking about the actors in particular. We're talking about lead actors. Sure. But also supporting actors, the people who are not quite the stars, maybe not the Harpers or the Schwarbers or the Castellanos or even the Hoskinses, not even the wheelers, not even the Nolas, the folks who either are platooned who come off the bench more regularly the middle relievers we were talking about a few minutes ago, maybe even the back end relievers too. the folks who need to fill out this roster who maybe aren't making $30 million a year or even 10 or even five or $6 million a year, but whose contributions are going to be essential for this team. Again, hopefully please somebody out there making the playoffs again. So for your money and to your eyes, who among the contributors from a role-playing perspective or, or bench or the, the middle ends of the bullpen is the most important as a supporting actor to this team? Okay, so I have, I'll give you one player, but then I have an uh, unconventional answer for this. Oh, okay. Uh, the one player I'm going to give you is Connor Brogdon. Mm-hmm. You know, like they really need a, a right-handed strike thrower uh, to pitch in the seventh and the eighth innings. And we, we've seen him do it for stretches. We've seen flashes of him being a really, really solid setup, man. Yep. Uh, they need to see it on a consistent basis. He, you know, cause you look down a list and there's just not, you know, after Knable and Familia who, who are going to fill late inning roles for you, the other righties that you're looking at Coonrod and Dominguez, uh, Nick Nelson, I guess, if you want to put him in there, uh, just don't stick out to me as much. I think, 
Brogdon, they're putting a lot, I think, on Brogdon. And I agree. I, I, I think he's a big piece of that bullpen having success in 2022. And then so now my unconventional answer is going to be best supporting actor is the fastball. And that's hitting the fastball. Go on. Okay. Okay. okay so I, I, if you read The Athletic uh, on Monday. Uh, As I do my, and everybody my, should. My notes, like uh, my, my weekly notes column, I'm, I'm focused on, you know, the, the struggles the Phillies have had against the fastball in recent years. And it wasn't just last year. Like since 2018, they're 25th in baseball in mm. selecting percentage against fastballs. Mm-mm. And it just so happens that <laughs> last season, Nick Castellanos ranked 7th in baseball in slugging against fastballs and Kyle Schrober ranked ninth. Well, well, well. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think so either. And like we talked about attitude and that's been like the buzzword, right? You know, Mm -hmm. since they acquired Castellanos and Schwarber, these guys are bringing different attitude. They bring experience, they bring uh, energy, but really what they bring is like, it's a presence in the box. And what's the presence in the box is that the other pitcher is like, I, I know that if I make a mistake to one of these guys, they are going to punish it. And I don't know that that's been a thing that opposing pitchers have been afraid of in the majority of the Phillies lineup. They mm-hmm. last year, like they ranked 22nd in slugging percentage against fastballs as a team. And they had the best hitter against fastballs, best slugger against fastballs in all baseball. <laughs> Bryce Harper ranked first. He had a 7-10 oh, slug against fastballs and the team uh, as a whole ranked 22nd. I don't think teams were afraid to go at the Phillies with fastballs. Nope. And there was a good reason why. And I think that that sort of energy changes when you put Castellanos and Schwarber. And no no doubt, like, it's just one part of the puzzle. Like, the fastball isn't, you know, the, I'm sure the Phillies are going to see more breaking balls this year, no doubt. Uh, but if you get into a hitter's count and they're going to have to throw a fastball, the Phillies are in better position to to capitalize on those mistakes. And I well, think that's, that's... going to be a really big trend line to watch during the season. And And that's awesome from a macro perspective you know, to look at that contrast and look at the additions in that light, because it, it does give me a little bit of hope that things will improve there because you're right. It was very, very frustrating at times on the micro that is maybe that might be important for everybody except for Harper. You can just continue to do what he's doing, but I don't know if there's another hitter in the lineup for whom that's more important than Bohm because his struggles with the past fastball, I think were the most pointed. I don't have all of the numbers in front of me, but there were multiple times where I'm just recalling eye test moments in the summer where he was, if he was making contact on a fastball, he was topping it, getting under it. He was not squaring things up. The timing looked bad. He was often challenged with fastballs and and more frequently than I can remember for a lot of hitters in two strike counts that weren't full counts getting fastballs, which is not typically when you you'd see a heater for somebody with, you know, the reputation that he has had, I guess, as a hitter. Now he's rebuilding that reputation. So I think if if Alec Bohm can figure out how to get his timing right and square up fastballs a little bit more. <laughs> It'll go a long way and it'll be, thankfully, it's not a crucial component of success for this team, but it'll be a nice cherry on top of things. He slugged 264 against fastballs last year uh, and that ranked, that ranked, I don't know what my cutoff was. I forget it's in the story, uh, but that ranked 224th out of 224 uh, qualified phys- hitters. Physical it was pain. bad. I mean, it was as bad as it gets. Yeah. Mm. 
I'm like I'm grimacing. Two sixty four slug. I mean that is just, just <laughs> against. Right. I mean it's it's unfathomable. Yeah. Well, those, those are okay. Those... Well, Paul, give me your. Well, I mean, give me your best supporting actor. Yeah, I, mean, like, so... I, I went a little off the board here. So I, no, I feel like no. The bench though, when you look at it, it's, it's it's hard for me to know because it's it's um, you know, with the American League style rules, like the, the bench, it, it's gonna be it's gonna have a different role this year. I mean, obviously, Agreed. if there's an injury, somebody's gonna need to step in and 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 take those everyday reps. But the bench is um not as important and and i'm i i love national league baseball and i i of course i watch american league games over the years but uh i i don't really know what to expect in terms of how like how important the bench will be with this new style that's that's absolutely true i i do think though um that the real importance for me in terms of role playing I want to say Sir Anthony Dominguez, but I don't think you can really, and for reasons you touched on, you can't rely on him to really be a critical piece of this team. He's coming back from too many injuries, you know, set the bar really low. I'm hoping for a good 25 to 30 innings and then just, you know, build on it from there. I feel like that would be great. I want to set those expectations low and then hopefully he shatters them. What I'm interested in is what the backup catching situation looks like because. JT, for as good as he still is, did slide a little bit offensively last year. He had some trouble with his hip and and I think a lower leg injury too mm-hmm. uh, that he was fighting through toward the end Wrist. of the year. He took the R- David Hale uh, wild pitch against the Cardinals walk off wild pitch off the wrist. Right. Okay. So it was the wrist, yeah. not the lower leg. Yeah. So he, he had the hip and the wrist. And you know, defensively, I, I still think he's an incredibly valuable asset, even if his offense slips a little bit. He's a great defender. He's still got a tremendous arm. And until that slips a little bit more noticeably, I won't really be concerned about things. But his workload is going to have to be managed, whether it's, you know, a turn at the DH rotation, because, you know, they're going to be cycling a lot of guys through the DH this year. Or if he's just plain getting a day off, right now it looks like catcher two is Garrett Stubbs, at least at the moment. What Garrett Stubbs is able to provide, I feel it can be important. He's not going to play a ton, hopefully, because if he does, that means bad things for JT. But for so many years, we we had to watch Andrew Knapp do okay at the plate one year and then just completely lose it. And then on defense, he was he was fine. Another bar that's not really all that high to exceed. But if Garrett Stubbs can come in and provide, you know, good good relief, be a spell guy, be somebody where if you have to plug him in when JT needs a rest, you're not, you know, staring down a complete black hole, both in the eight or nine spot in your lineup and behind the plate. Like, I want the backup catcher spot to not be something I dread. That falls to Garrett Stubbs right now. Potentially Donnie Sands, if, if he survives the spring, and ends up having to get a call up at some point. Right now, the presumptive favorite, I, I would think, is Garrett Stubbs. Whoever it is just needs to not make me fear days where JT has to take a break. <laughs> and you think about it, and I actually, this is in my notes for Monday, too. I mean, so no catcher in majors started more than 120 games last year. Hmm. You can't reasonably, Real Muto started 112. And so even if you say he, he starts 112 again this year, which I, I think that might be even a tick high, like that's Maybe. a lot. That's Maybe. a lot of games. Uh, you're still looking at 50 games for the backup catcher. And that's almost a third of your games. That's 31% about. Yeah. 
That's it's right. not an insignificant spot. And I know people like a backup catcher is like, who cares? I mean, at 31% of your starts, your games, like, yeah, they need some just basic confidency there. So I like that one. And now we get to the PhD resistance, the award we've all been waiting for, the granddaddy of them all. Best actor, the team MVP. This answer could be very obvious. You could decide <laughs> to go with something a little indie that maybe only 10 people saw coming which may or may not be mirroring what could happen tonight at the Oscars, TBD. Who on this roster, or who is yet to be on this roster, that's an open question as well, will be the MVP, the most valuable player for this team, regardless of whether or not they place in awards or anything like that. Who is the backbone? Who is carrying this production across the finish line in October? Well, you're right. I mean, there's an obvious answer, and then there's a not so obvious one. Ones, but like I'm gonna go with Castellanos because mm. they just went over the luxury tax. They added a guy who doesn't really even, you know, at first blush fit on the roster the way it was constructed. They added him because he is an, an elite hitter, and if they are going to go where they're going to go. You know, we have a baseline for what we expect from Bryce Harper. We have a baseline for a lot of the other players. Castellanos, to me, uh, there is a bit of a wild card because we, you know, he he talked about it. He wants to win. He hasn't won a lot in his career. Uh, he's going to be playing in a beautiful ballpark for him to hit in uh, in 81 games uh, for his style. I think if they're going to go where they want to go, to me, he will have to be their most valuable player because he's just going to have to uh, produce at an incredible rate at the plate uh, to outweigh some of the other things about the fit on the roster. And they made the bet that they made because they think he's going to do that. So I'll go with that. That is a good pick. I think my eyes fall a little bit more toward the pitching side of things. And it's it's maybe a little bit of wish casting. But I need I already it. know what you're going to say. I need it to be Aaron Nola. Yeah. I need it to be Aaron Nola. Look, 2018 was a long time ago at this point, and and I'll I'll concede that. I think that's fine. I think it's reasonable to say we're never going to see another 2018 out of Aaron Nola. My counterargument to that is I don't think we need to have another 2018 out of Aaron Nola. Would it be great? Sure. What I'm looking for is the removal of the obvious frustrations that came along with so many of his starts over the last couple of years, where he had this wavering feel of the curveball, which he need, he needs to have in order to really be successful, where he would nibble along the strike zone with the sinker, not get a lot of calls, whether that was him or, or framing or the umpire. Could be a number of things, but it, it sure seemed like there was a bit of a slip over the last year or so. And the guy that we had at the top of our rotation in 2018 all of a sudden started fading into the background a bit. Thankfully, Zach Wheeler was there to pick up the slack. You know, at times when, when Zach Eflin was healthy, he's he's looked capable, if not quite ace-like. And there are other people on the rotation and in and like in the staff that that can support things a little bit. He doesn't have to do all of the heavy lifting. But we need something that's a little bit more reminiscent of that 2018 version than what we've been seeing the last couple of years. Right now, as things stand today. I don't know what kind of outing I'm going to see when I flip on a NOLA start. Mm. You know, you could have the guy who has that control, who has that incredible curveball, totally locked down 
and is getting guys swinging over it and chasing it in the dirt. Or you could have the guy who's given up four home runs and kicking this team uh, out of the game by the middle of the fourth or fifth inning. Thankfully, the offense is around now and, and a little bit bolstered to maybe slug their way back into it. But there was just something so demoralizing, the two-faceted part of Nola not being who he was at his peak so frequently and the team getting knocked back in these games that you would come to expect, you know, better performances out of this guy. And, and, and it's like this really unpleasant surprise. So again, it's a little bit of wish casting. He is not an odds on favorite. He is not somebody I would really even say is smart money to bet this on. But if he comes back looking like that guy from a few years ago, even in slightly more frequent shades and, and visions than he has been the last year or two, we're really on to something. I, I need it. And so I'm forcing it in and I'm going to say that Nola ends up being the team MVP just because it feels like it would do so much. It makes things easier for a lot of other guys. Sure would. Yeah. Okay. So with the hardware all handed out, that's our award ceremony. Applause, 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 confetti, confetti, confetti. We now move on to the after party and we have a singular topic to come after all of our, uh, all of our pomp and circumstance here. And it's, it's focusing on the position that we talked a little bit about last week. That's still no closer to being resolved here after another week of spring action. That is of course, third base earlier this week. Word came out that, well, you know, maybe Alec Bohm's position as the opening day starting uh, third baseman is uh, not quite set in stone, etched in stone, I believe was the phrase Joe Girardi used. And now we have thoughts of, oh, well, maybe if Bryson Stock keeps hitting his way in, he could start at third base. Or uh, if Bohm continues to look a little bit sluggish at the plate, maybe even Johan Camargo is the, uh, uh, what would it be? The, the, the Cedric Hunter honorary opening day. Uh, Sporkle third baseman right now. No one thing seems more likely than the other as crazy as that may seem from your perspective, Matt is Alec Bohm any closer to ending this race and saying, no, I am the starting and opening day third baseman. Everybody else fall in line. Bryson Stott, you wait your turn. Johan Camargo, you, you take a seat on that bench. This is me. This is my position. Or is it really just still, open season and anybody could end up snagging this by the time camp breaks. See, here's the thing, Paul, like I just don't know that it's about spring training. Like, I don't know if there's anything that Alec Bohm uh, can do between now and then to change certain people's minds. Hmm. Like, I feel like the die was cast in a lot of ways in some corners of the organization last year, like when he, when he was benched and then eventually sent out because really the manager would not play him anymore. Yep. And the manager had good reasons. You know, you might agree with them, you might disagree with them, but he had become something of a liability over there at third base, both yep. offensively and defensively. And I just feel like there are certain feelings that might be hard to overcome there. And so this isn't about like Bryson Stott having a good spring and Alec Bohm not really doing much so far this spring. I mean, that's okay. not. Okay. That's at least from where I stand. I mean, I just you know, I, I just, I wonder like what, what's the end game, right? Like if you burn the bridge that they are considering burning right now with the third overall pick 
in the 2018 draft, Alec Bohm. I, I just don't know uh, if the end justifies the means right now. I, I do understand that, like, uh, long-term, he, he probably does not project as their everyday third baseman. I think we would be silly to sit here and say that just because of what we saw on defense. Uh, well, and that, that raises an interesting question, though. So how close do you think they are to actually lighting that match and burning that bridge? Are we days away? Are we, you know, weeks, maybe a month or two of game action away? I, I going into spring training, I thought we would be a couple months away from it. I thought maybe we're like, you know, uh, early May kind of just the inflection point. I think that that it's possible that they make this call before the season starts i I mean and i don't hmm how do i say this uh i i just think that there are some corners of the organization that have just decided that he is it's just not going to work here and and i can Mm. understand why they think that i also think that it might be better to just see what happens in the first few weeks see what happens in the first month and then make the call. Like it's a bridge that if you want to burn it, like I, I get that. I totally get that. I think there's going to be a time and place to burn it. Sure. I, I don't know that it's uh, before the season starts. I just don't know if I would do it yet. And that's no knock on Bryson Stott. Uh, I think he's going to be a solid everyday player for them. But when you take the guy with the third pick in the draft, like you have pretty high expectations for him. Absolutely. And, and we're looking at a sample size right now. He's had 597 plate appearances in the majors. I'm just not ready to make like summary judgments on this guy. Like I'm just not. I, sure. I, and I know I, I've seen it. Like I, I don't, I have my doubts. I do. I just don't know that I'm, that I'm going to pull, I'm going to burn this bridge right now. Because if you do send them out, right. Like, let's say they go with Stott, you know, either at shortstop or third, maybe Gregorius yeah. is at shortstop, Stott's at third. They send Bohm to AAA. You've burned the bridge. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you're essentially yep. saying this guy is not a part of our future anymore. Uh, he's instantly a trade chip. Maybe he doesn't even get to sent to AAA. Maybe they just trade him before the season starts. Although I'm not even sure like what you would be, what would you go acquire yeah, what, right now? What would you be looking yeah, for at this you, point? Yeah. Like right. where are you upgrading? I guess you upgrade in center, but I don't know what, what, what Who's available? upgrade in center field are you getting? Like he's not going to be the centerpiece of a package for Brian Reynolds or Cedric Mullins. Uh, I think they should be treading carefully here. And and I and and look, like we've seen it. Like we know that there are serious flaws and there are real reasons to be doubtful about this guy's place in the in the franchise moving forward. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like people have crushed the Phillies before for not promoting, you know, for waiting too long to promote prospects or for oh, you know, yeah. bring guys up and and if they pull this trigger now and go with Stott a third, uh what a what a decision! I mean, what a decision to have to make right here. I'll say, well, that's something to think about. Not much of an after party, but it is, it is at least <laughs> thought provoking. Uh, I well, I would say that'll do it for our time today. That's our that's our session for this week here on Phillies Therapy. Uh, thank you all so much again for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, again, remember to read and, and follow Matt. His Twitter is Matt Gelb. He writes for the Athletic Philadelphia, where um, you can read his, his notes, columns, and reports from spring training and later on during the season. Uh, I am Paul Boyer. Matt, thank you so much. It's going to be an interesting week. <laughs>